Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by Dr. Ramawi, a board-qualified foot, rear foot, and reconstructive ankle surgeon with specializations in traumatic foot and ankle injuries and complex deformities. He earned his doctorate degree from the New York College of Podiatric Medicine and then continued on to a three-year reconstructive foot and ankle surgery residency. One thing I love about Dr. Ramawi and why I wanted to get him on here is because of his highly conservative approach, putting surgery as the second option rather than the first option in most situations. I think you'll enjoy this conversation that we had regarding different diagnoses, what conservative treatments can be done for them, as well as when surgery is possibly necessary. So let's tune in. Doctor, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm well, well. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You are quite welcome. I am super excited for this. Um, I listened to you on a couple other podcasts, and I love where you come from on things. And so I was super excited to get you on here and share with all of my listeners as well um, the wonderful information that you have since you have a very extensive background, which I do want to get into so first and foremost, I, do, I just want to talk about your background in general and um, how you got into becoming a, or why you chose to become a doctor and specifically why you chose to look at that foot and ankle area as a profession. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, growing up, actually, I was involved in a numerous amount of sports and I repeatedly suffered uh, ankle sprains. And the last injury uh, was enough to just end my career very short. So I always wanted to pursue a field that mixed sports and medicine. Um, and growing up, that was either for me orthopedics. And then later on, when I discovered podiatry, just made more sense to do podiatry since it's a field dedicated to just the foot and ankle. Uh, so I kind of just pursued that realm and uh, haven't looked back since. Awesome. Now, when we're talking history of injuries, are we talking fractures, just a lot of sprains? Uh, we had multiple sprains that were just, you know, I never even saw attention for them because, you know, everybody just sprains their ankle and just goes about their day, whether they tighten their sneakers or just rest for a day or two. Uh, the last injury actually ruptured my syndesmosis ligament, uh, and that was basically over after that. And uh, the problem with that injury is, again, I never saw treatment. And by the time, you know, eight to 10 weeks hit and I didn't feel better, I finally sought treatment. By then it was too late. So what sort of treatment at that point did they do for you? Nothing. I mean, the, the ligament at that point just scars in eight to 10 weeks post-injury. There's not much that could be done. Uh, if you have residual pain, then they could go in there and address it. But at that time, the two bones, the tibia and the fibula were approximated enough where uh, the options were pretty much limited. Okay. So bring that to present day. What limitations or um, do you have limitations, I guess I should ask, um, because of all of that and not getting treated? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in basketball, your jump off foot is your opposite extremity, which is my left foot in this case. So my jump off strength diminished greatly. Uh, my speed decreased as well. And then there's certain positions that I'm just unable to do because my ankles just has residual pain. Uh, so I, I'm not familiar with yoga positions, but there are certain positions that I get down on the mat and perform that I just can't put any pressure on the outside or the inside of my ankle. Okay. Awesome. And I just wanted to kind of bring that up just because, you know, as medical professionals, we, especially in our younger years, we don't get things taken care of and we do see the effects of this later on. So I definitely wanted to point out that like these things happen and it does limit us 
later on in life. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that's, that's kind of why I, I take every sprain that comes in serious. And part of my lecture series is making sure that everybody comes in for an evaluation, no matter how minor the sprain is. If you really take a consideration into the ligaments, the ligaments are soft tissue structures that are meant to hold two bones and make sure those bones don't separate. So if you sprain your ankle enough to cause pain or any sort of damage, for me, that's significant enough to seek evaluation and be treated properly so you don't have these issues later on. And I, I usually tell patients, I know firsthand what can happen if you neglect this. So just go out there and seek evaluation, no matter how minimal or maximal the, the injury may be. And I love that you say that because I, uh, when was this? This is early PT school. So this was like 16 maybe years ago. I had a severe sprain, wasn't getting better, went to ended up being three different physicians because the first two blew me off of it's just a sprain you'll be fine um long story short and ended up needing surgery because i had some ligaments that were completely shredded and just weren't restabilizing itself so um as i as an athlete and just as a functional human i think it's important just to get things checked out even if you do think it's just a very minor thing because it could be a lot worse than what people think yeah, and I would definitely seek special specialist's opinion uh, because sometimes you go to these general doctors or in urgent care and they do a phenomenal job because they have a sound knowledge of everything within the body, but not necessarily enough to say, hey, you're completely clear. So if they take their x-rays and say, hey, I don't see any broken bones, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean you're clear of all injury and you should always make the step forward to see a specialist in that regards. Absolutely. So how does what you dealt with as an athlete and as all these with ankle sprains went on, knocking them taken care of, how does that influence how you specifically do treatment and um, assess a, a patient of yours today? Yeah, it, uh, I'm much more aggressive, uh, I would say, than most people, just because these effects have lasted very long within my own experiences. So when a patient comes in, whether it be a grade one, two, or three ankle sprain, I'm treating them from day one, whether it be cast immobilization or bracing, and then uh, graduating them to functional rehab with physical therapy, and then eventually graduating them to uh, proprioceptive training to assure that this doesn't recur. Because mind you, my injuries were recurring until the final and last injury. So I, I always wonder if I had gone and sought out a professional opinion, my first ankle sprain and they did this regimen for me, uh, would that have prevented further injury? And I, I believe so, because the research and studies have shown that someone who has an ankle sprain and goes through the rehab process, including proprioceptive training, they have a less likely chance of doing this again. So I, I'm definitely more aggressive than most when it comes to even minor ankle sprains, to the point where uh, one or two patients have looked at me funny when I told them, hey, let's, let's take it easy for the next seven to 10 days, then we'll do a passive, then active range of motion, then we'll get you some balance training. And they would just be like, nah, I don't think it's that serious. And go away. But from my experiences, uh, again, if, if a ligament it causes pain or an, enough injury to cause you pain, then you probably did something, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. When talking about proprioception, I was going to get into this a little bit later, but actually this is a great segue into it. Uh, there's a lot of kind of research out there, and I'm not total research based on everything, but as looking at proprioception, um, being barefoot versus being in the shoe. So um, are, you train, are you suggesting people train proprioception both 
um, without shoes on and with shoes on to kind of get both aspects of function of life or how, what's your suggestion on that? I think balance is key. So uh, no pun intended. When I mean balance here, I mean balance between both barefoot and in sneakers. The reality is I know people want to do everything barefoot as far as proprioceptive training, but in reality, you're going to be using that in shoe gear. Uh, everyday walking in life or whether it be running or training for a marathon, etc., that's going to most likely be in shoe gear. So you kind of want to adapt your body and your proprioceptive receptors uh, within the shoe gear. You're going to be doing the actual physical activities. And uh, in terms of shoe gear, does it diminish your proprioceptive training? Absolutely. You know, you're uh, buffering out some forces, but you're buffering out some sensation as well. So again, balance is key. You want to do them in both. If I were to uh, pick one over the other, in, in my, my humble opinion, it would be in shoe gear, just because that's the physical demand you're going to be uh, expecting from your body. And Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Let's dive into a very common injury. I know you see it a lot. I know I see it a lot in my athletes, and that is plantar fasciitis. Um, and first, I do want to talk about plantar fasciitis like people just kind of lump any pain in the bottom of their foot as plantar fasciitis. So I do want to first have a discussion as far as what true plantar fasciitis is and what could also be going on, um, on that bottom of the foot pain that kind of mimics it. Sure. Uh, so plantar fasciitis, there's a ligamentous type structure on the bottom of the foot. It starts at the heel bone and kind of spans itself out to the five digits. Uh, when this ligamentous type structure becomes inflamed, you add the itis at the end, and hence you get the word plantar fasciitis. Uh, this pain can be troublesome to a lot of people. Uh, they wake up in the morning, that first step just is too gruesome for them to handle, or they're sitting down for a prolonged period of times, and they get up off their chair, and that heel is just killing them. Uh, so you want to address that when it comes. As far as differential diagnosis, there are many things that could kind of mimic the plantar fasciitis. Uh, one thing is called Baxter's neuropathy. It's not very common, but it's something that mimics the exact uh, pain. Another thing is a calcaneal stress fracture. Again, calcaneus is a very strong bone, not common, but can be present. Uh, another thing is PTTD. So the posterior tibial tendon also uh, crosses the arch of the foot and can kind of be vague in its presentation as far as the bottom or the arch pain. Uh, so you want to be on the lookout for all these things. And that's why a proper evaluation is key because it's easy to go online and say, I have heel pain. And guess what? 95% of the time, it's going to come up plantar fasciitis. So you're going to treat it as if it's plantar fasciitis. But in reality, if it's something else, you may be hindering your uh, progression and healing. So again, the theme of this talk, I think, is going to be to get a proper evaluation, no matter how uh, little or big your problem may seem at the time. Definitely. As a physician, what do you do specifically for plantar fasciitis when someone comes into your office? Sure. I have a, a very conservative algorithm that I perform. So if a patient's coming to me, and this is all going to be individually based, I'm, you know, nothing's uniform. Not everybody's going to get the same treatment. But my first line of defense tends to be uh, just your normal uh, conservative care. So stretching is going to be a big thing. The use of a night splint is going to be a, a big thing. The frozen water bottle in which you put a water bottle in the freezer and then you roll your bottom of the foot on it after work, that's a big thing. Uh, I do some taping, a low die strapping when they come in. If it's so inflamed that they can't walk, I'll supplement it with a cam walker in the beginning period. Um, Anti-inflammatories as needed. 
that's kind of my baseline. However, it's going to change as people come in. So if someone comes in and they're two months out and saying it still hurts, then we're talking about supplementing it with injection, physical therapy, other modalities that are going to help them even further. Uh, and then the chronic plantar fasciitis, I'm looking at different things, completely different from conservative. We're talking about shockwave therapy, laser therapy, uh, other things out of the box that may not be my first line of defense. And then in the rarest occasion, we're talking about 5% of the time, if that, uh, surgery if needed. How often do you use orthotics in this population? Plantar fasciitis depends on the foot type. Uh, oftentimes, these people will have a pronated foot type, meaning flat feet. Uh, so to prevent the uh, onset of recurrence, orthotics will be necessary. So if someone tells me, you know, I'm a runner and I'm constantly getting plantar fasciitis, I'm going to tell them, okay, this has happened once or twice. We, we need to supplement you and give you some support. And that support is going to be in the form of orthotics. Do you at the same time then have them work on foot strength in order to kind of address it from both aspects? Or what are your thoughts on that? In terms if they're flat-footed? Um, just foot strength in general. Foot strength, it depends. So plantar fasciitis in terms of foot strength, it's, it's tough for me to correlate the two because, uh, yes, the foot functions in a holistic manner. But the fascia itself, you know, it has a unique history in the sense that most people thought it was useless for the longest time. It's not until recently, uh, I want to say 20, 30 years, that people have now begun to appreciate the plantar fascia because of the pathology it has. So people know when the plantar fascia ruptures or is injured, uh, it changes the mechanics of your foot and you compensate in different manners. So as far as foot strength is concerned, uh, there's going to be different modalities for different pathologies. But plantar fasciitis, my goal is to calm down the fascia and break down any thickened tissue that may have occurred because of the fasciitis. Okay, cool. Makes sense. Let's go into the uh, PTTD a little bit. Let's explain what that is, first of all. And then um, I want to kind of talk about what you do for that as well. Yeah, so PTTD, there's a tendon called the posterior tibial tendon. It comes across the inside of your ankle and attaches in the arch of the foot. Its main purposes is to uh, keep the arch stable and uh, give you a proper alignment, as well as invert or turn your ankle and foot inwards. When that tendon collapses, you tend to get adult-acquired flat foot, which basically your foot begins to pronate over time. Now, the problem with this is the more your foot collapses, the more pain that you'll begin to get because the tendon this whole time is trying to fight that collapse. Its main job is to make sure that arch doesn't collapse. And when it does collapse, at a certain point, the tendon just gives up. It says, hey, I can't do this anymore. And if anyone's ever had this, they know that degenerated tendon sends off pain receptors that kind of hurts. So the idea here is to prevent the progression of this disease because it will get to a point where the only choice we have is surgery. So you want to make sure you catch this early and treat it early. Now, this scenario specifically, orthotics is a very great modality. Uh, in terms of preventing the progression of the problem. Awesome. How often do you see uh, per, how are you going to pronounce it, peroneal perineal tendonitis? Very common. Very, very common. I think it's often neglected, uh, especially in the setting of an ankle sprain. The perineal tendons um, are often missed and, uh, and, and should not be overlooked. So perineal tendonitis Perineals, again, they're responsible for turning your ankle outwards or what we call as eversion. 
they're responsible for 60% of that. So you could tell they're obviously often working in your normal day-to-day mechanics, whether it be running and walking and et cetera. Uh, it is something I see and I treat it just like every other tendonitis, uh, a period of immobilization, anti-inflammatories, and then we follow up with um, physical therapy and possible orthotics if needed. How long are you typically immobilizing people with these? It depends. It depends at what point they come and see me. Uh, the acute phase, in terms of scientific markers, lasts anywhere from three to 10 days. So it varies for different people. Uh, I, I usually do a week. So I'll see them. I'll put them in a boot. I'll say, come back in a week. And then we'll assess you then. I rarely uh, progress them out of the boot and straight into a sneaker. It's more of a gradual uh, progression into protective shoe gear, whether it be, okay, you're going to wear the boot for X amount of hours one day and then decrease it and decrease it, then go back into a sneaker, or we're going to just go from a boot to protective brace, then a sneaker. Again, this is all an individual basis, depending on how bad they're affected. Definitely. And then the last one, last diagnosis I wanted to talk about, or at least kind of get into a little bit, is the Achilles and the tendonitis, tears, implement, you know, everything that happens with that um, structure there. Yeah, so the Achilles tendon, you know, the longest tendon in the body, the strongest tendon in the body, uh, can withstand 10 times your body weight at certain points. So it's a very important structure in terms of the foot and ankle. Uh, tendonitis, tendinosis, and ruptures are not uncommon with this tendon just because it, there's a high demand for it to function. Uh, so patients will come in and uh, if we're talking about just general tendonitis or tendinosis, they'll complain of pain in the back of the heel. They'll complain of pain when they're you know, descending down the stairs or pressing the brakes on their car, things that demand the Achilles to go into action. Uh, again, the tendonitis protocol tends to be uniform in the sense it's a period of immobilization, anti-inflammatories, and then gradual progression into a protective shoe gear. As far as tendinosis, the osis indicates that it's a chronic condition. This isn't something people come to see you right away. They've had it for some time, and now they're having residual pain. Uh, when someone comes in for tendinosis, I'm expecting a thickened Achilles tendon, uh, scarred down bad tissue. And this regimen is a little different because I want to take them to physical therapy to break down this bad tissue and increase their uh, mobility or the elasticity of the tendon. Um, Again, this is going to require a biomechanical workup because if the patient has equinus, which is a constant strain on the Achilles tendon, you want to make sure that you increase their dorsiflexion uh, to assure that this doesn't reoccur. Uh, Orthotics, again, are a good supplement in this case to take them out of that equinus. Um, and take less strain off the Achilles tendon. As far as tears and ruptures, you know, these are high-end or high-impact injuries uh, that tend to occur in the setting of physical activity or some sort of sports. Patients uh, who are weekend warriors, the way we call them, meaning patients who haven't worked out or don't play sports as often as they should, and then they attempt to really go full throttle one day, they tend to get this just because you haven't given the Achilles enough time or enough stretching or enough uh, preparation for that activity. And anyone who suffered from Achilles rupture will tell you it's, it's no fun. Uh, is they'll tell you someone hit them in the back of the ankle with a tennis racket and they couldn't see anybody and they don't uh, know who did it. Uh, they'll hear a loud pop. Uh, I've heard times people say they thought they heard a gunshot. That's how loud the pop can be at times. A patient will come in, they'll lose that plantar flexion strength. So I'll tell them, press on the gas pedal, and uh, it'll be very painful to do so, or if they can't do it. 
Um, you'll feel what's called a palpable del or a divot into the Achilles, especially in comparison with the opposite uh, tendon. So these are little signs and, and symptoms of Achilles ruptures, but Achilles ruptures can be a devastating injury, uh, which oftentimes requires surgery. Definitely, definitely. Um, I'm so glad you brought up the the tendinosis part of things because it's something that is definitely overlooked or maybe not even known of by a lot of um, people that do have these pains for a long time, um, tendinitis for, or the itis for a long time, and they don't realize that it turns to this other process and that this other process can actually be more detrimental to them. And um, so I think it's just a great, I'm, a great point to bring up that when you do ignore these issues, like other worse things can happen. Yeah. And you know, it, when you come at it with tendinosis or plantar fasciosis, meaning you, you ignored the plantar fascia for a long time, the physician or clinician runs out of tools, right? They don't have the, the means to kind of address that as much as they do when you first get these conditions. Uh, so yeah, they become a problematic just because the, when you have tendinitis and you kind of just ignore it, the tissue that replaces the original tissue isn't the same, made of the same components. It has less water, it's less elastic, and therefore can't, uh, can't respond to the demand you ask of it on a daily basis. And that's why you have that residual or chronic pain. So the idea here is going to be different in terms of treating tendonitis versus tendinosis. Definitely. Do you see any... Um, like sport to sport, individual to individual demographic, however you want to put it, do you see consistencies in like what diagnoses you see in different, different populations? Uh, it's tough to say because, uh, you know, I see a wide variety of patients and not enough volume to make that assessment. Uh, there's obviously well-known studies that show some individuals in certain sports are more prone to other injuries than others. For me in my practice, it's tough to say that at this point, I deal with a lot of runners and something that runners get often is plantar fasciitis as well as the occasional stress fracture. Mm -hmm. um, so stress fractures unfortunately happen a lot in runners, whether it be uh, overuse or improper training or improper footwear or just normal wear and tear, uh, stress fractures can be troublesome for them because the bone unfortunately needs about four to six weeks to heal and there's not much we can do to kind of expedite that process. As a runner, I know I get this asked a lot, so I'd love to hear your explanation. As a runner, someone dealing with pain, aren't sure if it's stress fracture or muscle tendon related. What are some key things that um, being kind of that are pinpoint signs for you that it's um, is a stress fracture or ways that you differentiate it? Sometimes it's very difficult to tell. I mean, I, it'd be hard for me to knock on any physician or any clinician that can't diagnose it right away. When a patient comes in presenting with what sounds like a stress fracture, and I, I really mean that with what sounds, meaning they have that presentation. Oh, you know, instead of running five miles, I ran 10. I woke up the next day and it's starting to hurt. And now there's swelling and a little bit of bruising. I, before I even touch the patient, I'm thinking, oh man, this could be a stress fracture. So we palpate each metatarsal individually and see if we could elicit any pain. If we can't elicit pain, then my diagnosis is a little more confirmed for a stress fracture. Now, unfortunately, um, a stress fracture doesn't appear on an x-ray until about 10 to 14 days. So to confirm your diagnosis, it's very tough. This is going to be a uh, history-based uh, diagnosis. 
the beauty about stress fractures versus some sort of tendon injury, the treatment is kind of the same in the beginning. So you can kind of get away with making an error, right? So if I think you have some ligamentous or tendinous injury, but it could be a stress fracture, I'm going to put you in a boot anyway. Uh, you know, let's put you in a boot. Either way, this is going to help either one to heal. We'll bring you back in about 10 days and we'll repeat x-rays. At that point, I could definitely confirm if it's a stress fracture or not. And if so, we'll, can, we'll keep you in the boot. We didn't start backwards, right? Because we started from day one. If not, then I could progress you out of the boot and in protective shoe gear and hopefully get you back in action. So again, I think being aggressive is the key because you don't want to miss a stress fracture because depending on uh, the location and the severity of it, it could be detrimental to the patient themselves. Yeah, definitely. I, it's not often, but you do see the ones that continue running and have a complete fracture eventually. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, runners, you know, they love their craft and anything that kind of uh, stops them from it, they, they don't want to accept it sometimes. So uh, I, I appreciate their ambition, but the talk I usually have with them is about longevity. I kind of make the case that, hey, let's sacrifice these next four weeks so you're able to run three races in the next uh, year or so. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of resonates with them and they say, okay, that makes sense. Um, and there's things they could do in the meantime that uh, make sure that they don't lose their endurance, such as biking or swimming and other uh, non-weight-bearing activities. Absolutely. I, I mean, I've dealt with stress fractures in my past and I was in the pool every day and definitely didn't lose my endurance by any means when I did that. So yeah, swimming is great. Swimming is absolutely phenomenal. You know, the more I learn about the benefits of swimming, uh, I'm very upset that I never learned to swim myself. So <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely one of the recommendations I give. When you're assessing someone, um, are you, when you're watching them walk, are you looking up at kind of what the hip and the back area are doing? Or do you leave those more to the therapist once you send them there? No, I, I try to look at everything. I know it's uh, our job to focus on the foot and ankle, but if you pay attention to the shoulders and hips, they kind of give you clues on what's going on and uh, or to confirm what you suspect is going on. Uh, the body compensates in different ways. Your, your body is one big kinetic chain. Uh, if one thing is off, other things will take the load for it. So if I suspect you, you know, you're pronated on one foot, I'm expecting to see certain things on your knees or your hips to kind of compensate. And if I do see those things, then I know for a fact, yes, that's, that's what's going on here. How often are you seeing more where the foot is referred pain from the back rather than actual foot issue? Uh, often, actually, uh, I work very closely with the chiropractors in the area, and they'll send me their residual back pain patients. And that's the setting I often see them in. It's not something that people come in and say, I have back pain, um, just because they're not going to come to me for back pain. But uh, chiropractors will work on people for, you know, uh, X amount of time, and they'll say, can, can I send you to a podiatrist? I know this sounds weird, but I'm, I'm starting to suspect that you have another route for this problem. Uh, and they'll come in and I'll notice they have some sort of limb length discrepancy or they're pronated on one side. So that's causing their uh, muscles to tighten on their back on the ipsilateral side and things like that. And believe it or not, we get them into protective shoes or uh, orthotics and kind of decrease the load or increase the integrity of the uh, foot and their back pain tends to resolve. So it happens. It definitely happens. I love that you had that relationship with those chiropractors because 
I off, I've written a couple of blog posts on it as far as just the foot is the foundation and how much that foot plays into everything up the chain. And if we don't have that all working together, that it does, it can contribute to a lot of things in the hip, the back area. Absolutely. You know, and there's a lot of people that research this as far as how having a certain t- foot type will uh, change your center of gravity or it'll uh, alter your mechanics from hip flexors to tightening the back muscles to changing the mechanics of the knee. So it is one big kinetic chain. And with the foot being the foundation, you want to make sure the start of that chain is as strong as can be. Assuming someone transitions properly into it and doesn't just go from, you know, a 10 mil drop to a minimalist shoe and cold turkey, What's your opinion on minimalist shoes in general for running or day-to-day use? You know, nothing is black and white when it comes to physical medicine, right? Everybody has their own protocol for each individual. As far as general advice for the public, uh, unfortunately, the research just doesn't provide enough proof to go ahead and support minimalism full throttle, especially for everyone, right? It's tough for me to say everyone is going to be fine in minimalist shoes Everyone is not susceptible to injury if you make that transition. Uh, So for me to protect myself and my patients, I have to go with what's proven to work and what's worked for a longest period of time. And in this regards, it is sneakers. Uh, There are some researchers that will provide benefits to uh, minimalist shoes. But even then, I think the most optimistic one I've come across personally, uh, anyone is more than willing to share some of their papers with me, is the transition from sneaker to minimalist shoes over a 10-week time frame. Uh, That's the time frame that they deduced was the amount needed to properly progress from sneakers to minimalism shoes. So again, I I try not to be very uh, stubborn about this topic because I know people who believe in minimalism just swear by it and say they feel so much different and better. And that's great, you know, but as a clinician, we have to provide, unfortunately, general information uh, for a specific person, right? So that can be tough in a venue like a podcast. However, if you do seek professional help, or a one-on-one examination, then that advice can be geared more towards you specifically. But for now, I think uh, I have to side with protective shoe gear. Okay. Makes sense. Makes complete sense there. And I definitely agree as far as if someone is transitioning to a minimalist shoe, it does need that time frame. I'm normally, same thing, suggesting that 10, 12-week period for a full transition, if not even longer than that one. Yeah, sure. You know, that, that was just one study. It doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody. Again, this is just generalized information. Mm-hmm. Everybody's yeah. going to be different. Uh, the longer you've been in sneakers, which is almost all of us our whole lives, the harder that transition is going to be. Um, and one thing I think everyone can agree on, whether you are a big minimalist fan or not, is that transition, again, can't be cold turkey. You can't just ditch your sneakers and just put on a pair of Vibrams and say, yep, this is going to happen. It, it, it really shouldn't work like that. Definitely. Um, some just came to mind that I want to kind of get into. I know you, where you live, you see it a lot. People are walking in the business world, so they're in high heels all day. Um, a lot of athletes in general are in the business world, have to wear high heels, have to wear some sort of shoe with the heel on it. And then they go from there and they want to go run or train in whatever sport they're playing. 
obviously that Achilles, everything's kind of in that foot is really tight, is really short, and then they go to activity where they need more dynamic, more extensibility. What are some ideas you have for people for that transition that they can do to warm up prior to actually getting into their activity? Uh, a lot of things, a lot of times I'll tell the people here who do that, wear dress shoes with a heel or wear, uh, you know, the women in their high heels is, Hey, listen, how about you walk in your sneaker to and from work and just change into your heels when you get there. And you'll see this a lot in New York. If you're ever in New York city or on the train or just walking in, in my neck of the woods in grand central, you'll see business professionals in sneakers, uh, because they've probably had some sort of pathology at some point that they just don't want to experience again. So that's the first advice I give. As far as making that transition, you know, you, five o'clock hits, you're about to go home, you want to do your run. A proper warm up is crucial. Uh, we have a stretch regimen in our uh, clinic that we give out to make sure that the Achilles is properly warmed up before you go about your activities. But again, this uh, progression into activity is what we're looking for. You want to make sure you go from the high heels or the dress shoes into a sneaker, but then again, tell your Achilles, hey, wake up because we're about to go to work. You don't want to just jump into this thing. It's the same analogy when you go to the gym. You don't just go to the gym, uh, go to the bench press and start working out. You kind of stretch out your chest. You make sure everything's okay. You get the blood flowing and then you hit the chest. The running, walking, whatever it may be, is the same analogy. You don't just want to get up and start running. You want to wake up the muscles, whether it be the Achilles or in the, the foot itself, and say, hey, we're about to experience some physical activity. Please get ready. <laughs> yeah. I think it's great to point out because it is, for whatever reasons, I feel like it's mostly with runners that we just don't warm up. It's We just put our shoes on and we get out the door and go versus – you go to the gym, you're going to lift weights, you're going to warm up first. You play basketball, you're going to warm up a little bit first. But for whatever reason with runners, it just doesn't happen as frequently. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I read a lot online. And unfortunately, running gets a, a huge uh, misnomer that, hey, anyone can do it. All you have to do is go outside and run. It's cheap. It's easy. Just go for it. And that's not necessarily the case. And anyone who's dealt with pathology attributed to running can tell you that's a huge mistake. You want to make sure you properly warm up, whether that be with a static or dynamic warm up, whatever works for you. But you want to get your body ready to start that. And the terrain here in New York is unfortunately unforgiving. Uh, potholes, cracks, or whatever it may be. So again, I, I don't like this idea that you just want to jump into running. It's not like, oh, basketball or football where you have to warm up. No, it's actually like that, if not more. So make sure you give yourself a proper warm up before uh, going to run. <laughs> Do you have any, or do you send people, especially your runners that are maybe frequently injured, do you send them to get running assessments done at all and kind of get their form looked at? I, I, not running assessments. I tend to do uh, examinations myself, whether it be a gait exam or a stance exam and see if there's something that I can catch that I may be missing. If maybe the patient themselves are pronators or supinators or they're flat-footed or they have some aspect of equinus, uh, I'll tend to do that myself. And if I need to supplement them with certain things, I will. Uh, runners who come to see me are very active about their craft. Uh, so by the time they see me, they've probably already had assessments, honestly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They're very, very adamant about running and they always want to make sure they're at their top notch. So runners, it's not uncommon for them to come to my practice with two, three sneakers and say, hey, this is what I'm running with. Uh, what do you think? And et cetera. 
Um, but I, I try to be a one-stop shop as far as knowledge and services here. Awesome. That's, that is really good for, for, uh, so I guess busy people in general that don't have to go everywhere to get like five different assessments done that you can do everything there. So that's great. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, always getting a different set of eyes on things is, is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but yeah, I, I, I give people the best knowledge I could possibly offer. Uh, and if there's something I can't help with, I try my best to say, Hey, this is out of my scope. Uh, but feel free to see X, Y, and Z. Cool. Just kind of some final thoughts. What, um, what things do you feel are super important to share with us that we haven't discussed yet today? I think we've hit a lot of great things, but the theme here is uh, to seek evaluation, right? Preventative medicine is the best medicine, and the prevention of a, of a pathology will always be better than its cure. And the point is to seek proper evaluation. If you're really serious about your craft and you want to do this for an extended period of time, then you should take the proper steps to assure that. And that begins with seeking help, regardless if you need it at this point or not. Uh, the lifespan of the human is increasing and our physical activities are increasing. That means the demands on our body will increase as well. So the idea is you want to feel um, healthy in the longer stages of your life. And to do that, you want to see proper help. Um, again, we talked about things that we could supplement in areas of PTTD or recurring plantar fasciitis or perineal tendonitis and then Achilles tendonitis that may prevent its recurrence or its progression. And the way you could only do that is to seek help before it happens. So uh, I think that's the main uh, point I want to send out. Awesome. Thank you for that. So, Doctor, if someone wants to reach out to you, has further questions for you, what's the easiest way to find you? Uh, they could find me on my website at grandcentralfootcare.com. Uh, they could find me on social media. My Instagram handle is uh, nycfootdoc. That's D-O-C at the end. I make it a priority to respond to any direct messages or emails that people may send. And the email is attached to the Instagram handle. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm more than willing to answer any questions to the best of my abilities, of course. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure having you on. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. And that concludes this episode of Highly Functional. I truly appreciate the time you spend to listen to myself and my colleagues share with you how to become highly functional individuals and how to be highly functional individuals. If you learned great information from this, I would love for you to share it with your friends and help them become highly functioning individuals as well. Until next time, go out and be highly functional.